0: want to welcome you here, uh, especially welcome those of you that are students. I know this is the weekend when students start trickling back in, and so welcome. I also want to uh, welcome, for the first time in our history, uh, two sanctuaries at the same time. And so we are running, if you haven't known, we're running the other sanctuary right now that has live worship and uh, live everything, and the the is uh, uh, being brought over there so hi hope west how 's it going in Hope Classic? You guys rock over there, so we 're excited to have have that happening as well. I want to start today by um, reading a verse and i 'm going to end with the verse i agree i couldn 't agree it 's more impressive. Uh, I want to read this verse to you as we begin here. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. We are in a series right now called The Renovation Project. Uh, Pastor Core has been uh, preaching on this as well as I preached a couple weeks back on the whole concept of uh, how the gospel actually changes us. Uh, we, we spent many months in the book of Galatians, around nine months or so, and we really got a rooting in what the gospel is and what it isn't, and how right belief can actually uh, change your life. But what we're really trying to hone on in this series now till right at the beginning of October is letting that transform from the 18 inches from our head all the way down to our hearts, and then course through our hands and feet as we walk throughout our lives. One of the fun things about this particular series is we have uh, been asking everyone, or as many as would like, to be part of the conversation of how the gospel has or is changing you. And so we've received quite a few stories at stories.hopecc.com. If you go to our website, in fact, it's the First thing, you see those stories and you can, there's only three across the top and there's more as you page on through and I received a bunch this week and so I know there's more uh, to be updated soon and so please keep those coming. Try to keep it to 200 to 400 words if at all possible or we'll have to edit it a little bit because men can't read after 400 words. Then it just stops and so I don't know what the deal is there. In 1959, a movie came out. Starring, at that time, he was uh, at the top of his game, Harry Belafonte. And the movie was called The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. And the movie was, uh, I've never seen the movie, i never even heard of the movie. (laughs) I just Googled this up and I wanted a a graphic that works. But the movie was a sci-fi apocalypse kind of doomsday thriller. And that's what was taking place in this. I'm really not interested in the movie at all. What I'm interested in is that concept, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Two weeks ago, I spoke to you about kind of the storyline or how biblical theology or thinking of the idea of change from the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation, how that fits in with the storyline of Scripture. And I told you in that as we got to Ephesians chapter 2, I said, there are three classic enemies of the Christian. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And they hit you you're not even sure which one it is sometimes, influences the world, right? The world and its influences. The flesh, that's our own desire, that is, if you're a follower of Jesus, it is not yet redeemed. In fact, it never will be redeemed. It's only going to die. And you could say, is the flesh my body? Well, kind of, but it's, it's more than that. It's this desire that I have within me that because I was brought into a sinful world, thank you Adam and Eve, that we were brought into this. There's something about me that's turned away from God. And it's not only that. If, it's, if you think it was that bad enough, there's more. Uh, there's also spiritual forces of evil in the world, the devil and his cohorts, that are working in temptation to just take away our joy and to take us away from the ways of God. And so these three things are at you. So what does that play out like? Well, let me give you a couple. Let me give you three scenarios. Let's just say you're a college freshman. Got any college freshmen here? Raise your hand. Okay, let's mock them. No, just kidding. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to Hope Community Church. Let's just say you're a college freshman. And, and let's just, uh, do you live in the dorms? You live in the, yeah. So this will work really well for you. <laughs> I lived in the dorms, and to this day, it's hard for me to open my bedroom door without being careful of the first step. I'm not going to go into it any more than that, but in the dorms, you got to be careful of your first step. In case a guy was leaning up against it who maybe the previous night had way too much of a good thing and left something there at my door. It's happened. So let's just say you're a freshman. Let me just encourage you, those of you who raised your hand, that over the course of the next four years, you will set a trajectory for the rest of your life. How's that for frightening? I really don't care about your career. I got to be honest with you. I know very few people that actually work in their career that they went to school for. But your character and who you are as a person, and the friendships you make, and those things, those will last a lifetime. Those of you who are older, can I get an amen on that? Huh? Huh? Yeah. Those kind of you don't. How many of you actually use your degree? Yep. There you go. Four of you in this room, and at Hope West, none. I don't see any. So. uh, you say you're a freshman, though, and you're right now in, in a process where you're being bombarded with this. The The influence of people and everything is hitting you, and, and it's hitting you with ways that maybe you've never even thought about. Maybe you've never thought about, am I going to be that partier type person? All of a sudden, it's right there, front and center for you. And for the first time in your life, you're thinking, whoa, this is actually really an option. This could You know, I could just go this route. It's there. It's hitting with you. Let's just say you're a young mom. Let's just say uh, you're a young mom. You just had your first child. You have, by definition, what I call YMS. It's a disease. It's called young mom syndrome. You know a young mom because they're carrying everything, okay? A kid in one arm, a baby stroller, another one, a play pack on their back, all the food they'd ever need in case the apocalypse happens, everything and they're wandering out, and they are always got the same look. <laughs> right? They're just dazed. And somebody told you, who right now you'd like to get their, their number and, 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 and do a number on them, that there's nothing more joyful than children. <laughs> okay, anyway. Well, there isn't. They're great. But they're also the most frustrating things on the planet, Right? They never do anything according to schedule. Even if you have a perfect baby, they don't go to the bathroom when you want them to. Okay? It's at the inopportune time, and it's always the major blowout. I'll let you figure out what that is if you don't know. It's just, that's who they are. And so now, kind of this life that you thought was ahead of you is filled with these other things. And part of your identity is like, do I I really matter as a person anymore? And you're really struggling with self-identity. Let's say you're a 45-year-old executive. You graduated from, uh, say, Carlson School of Management, and you're out now in the business world, and you have been working at this for a long time. You're married. You have a wife and, and two or three children, and you have been s- slowly but surely starting to align yourself with how successful you are in your career, and you have watched over the last five years that you, you rise to a certain position and then plateaued. You have been plateauing for five years, and you realize as you watch people who've just graduated or are much younger than you are rising above you sooner and quicker, and the frustration level starts to rise, and you're feeling like, what is the deal here? And you go home, and night after night, you complain to your spouse and your, and your, your kids, and, and finally your spouse says, I, 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 you just need to stop this. Stop. Stop. And so it break, It brings a barrier into your relationship with your spouse. And, and so for the first time in your life, there's an attractive young lady at, at work, and, and you're thinking, I really connect with this person. No, I would never have an affair with them, but, but I really connect with them. They listen to me. And it goes from listening occasionally as you cross by each other's desks go to, hey, why don't we have lunch? And that goes a little further. And you find yourself in a position, you think, how in the world did I get here? Those three stories are the world, the flesh and the devil okay that's exactly what the world, the flesh and the devil is. and what today what I want to talk about is to continue on in what course started last week when he talked about how, what do we do now? How do we allow the gospel to actually change us so that when real life hits and it will hit the moment you walk out of here. For some of you, it'll happen right now. You're carrying thoughts and things into here and you're not able to to, to, uh, decompress from some of those things and that's all you're really thinking about right now. When that hits, how are we different? And Core talked about last week about how we move, uh, what's going on internally with us. What I want to talk this week is about uh, what happens on internally to to us should actually make a difference in how we walk, okay? So that's what we're going to get after Today, if you're with me, I'm gonna follow an insert. If you wanna pull it out from your worship folder, you can kinda do that. A few years back, I asked a bunch of people to give me their definition of sin. What is sin? What, What is the definition they gave? And here's some of the ones that I received back from them Sin is the vehicle that transports me away from God, it increases the distance between where I am. And the destination I seek. One person just said, and these were anonymous, and so I don't know which Hopester said these. But sin is just destruction. And this might have been a person who had uh, some major thing just recently happen. Or, and it just was ruining their life. Another person said, sin is idolatry. That is worshiping something other than God to fill me in a way that pushes God out. Of where he belongs in the king spot of my life and places me or leisure or sex or vacations or rest or lust or any other thing as an idol in its place. Another person said, Sin is attempting to fill legitimate needs. Whoops, uh, did I skip one? I, oh, okay, I got two more here that some all got cut. But sin is attempting to fill legitimate needs through illegitimate. Means And then lastly, sin is choosing my innate sinful desires, telling myself that they are better, more right for me, or more satisfying to me than what God, holy and infinite, has set before me. I hate sin. I hate that I choose it over God. I am not worthy of his grace and mercy, but God rocks. I'm alive only by his infinite worth. Here's where we're going today. Here's the big idea. It's nice if, if you know, what the preacher talk about? You ever hear that? Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge went to church. His wife asked him, what did the preacher talk about? All right, first asked him, how was it? And he says, it was good. He says, well, what did the preacher talk about? Well, sin. She's trying to get him to talk. Well, what did he have to say about it? He's against it. Okay, so, all right. Got his point across, all right. So I want to get you to get the big idea today. This is where we're going. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, sin no longer has authority or mastery over you, and therefore, change or obedience is not hypothetical, it's actually real. It might not feel like it, but it's real, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So, I'm going to break it into two parts. Sin no longer has mastery over you. And secondly, obedience is possible. I'm going to give six points. The first five are going to be in this whole concept that it no longer has authority over you. And the last one is going to be on, number six is going to be on, therefore obedience is possible. What that can look like, how we can walk in that. Okay, here we go. And it kind of follows a logical sequence. Those of you who are into logic... uh, It follows a logical sequence. Those of you who aren't and like arts and crafts, I'm going to have some pretty pictures here soon, okay? So just hang with me for a moment. It's a pop-up sermon. Wow, look at that. Anyway. uh, Okay. Sin no longer has mastery over number one. Jesus Christ has authority over everything. Let me read some scripture here that That will help you to understand that Jesus Christ has authority over absolutely everything. I'm just going from the book of Matthew. There are several places you could look and see this. Matthew, oops, Matthew chapter 8 says this When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, that would be a guy in the military, okay, secular military, came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, My servant uh, lies at home, paralyzed. And in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. Okay? So the guy, the guy hasn't even asked Jesus yet. He just says, this is the fact. And Jesus says, I'll go and heal him. The centurion says this. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And then he explains why he can say that. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. Better than my dog, that's for sure. Okay? I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, so he turns around from the guy and he looks at the other people behind him and says, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. You see what the centurion's saying there? Jesus, I'm an outsider. I'm not Jewish, none of that, but I know here's what I know. I understand the, the ranking of authority, and if you just say it, it'll happen because you have that authority. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus uh, is in this, this uh, place where he's teaching, and some people bring to him a paralytic. Lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> now, that's interesting, right? He just looks at the guy and says, your sins are forgiving. At this, some of the teachers of the law, the religious people in the room said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Why? Because only God can forgive sin. Why? Because God is the one who's been sinned against. If someone sins against me, you can't go to somebody else and say, I'm really sorry for what I did to Steve. Oh, you're forgiven. No, you got to come to me, right? So, saying, Whoa, this guy's making a claim that he is God. And look at how Jesus responds. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, which, by the way, you're done if you're having a conversation with Jesus and you think you can argue with him but think something else. <laughs> Dang, that's a good superpower. And it is when you're Almighty God. Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But, so that you can know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given Such authority to men. So here's Jesus. He has that kind of authority. In one of the gospel accounts, when they come to arrest Jesus, they ask him, Are you Jesus? And he says, I am, which is another way in the Old Testament of saying, I'm God. They all hit their knees. (laughs) These are the people coming to arrest him. They're on their knees. He's like, We gotta, I've got to do this crucifixion. It's a very necessary part. And so, could you get up? That's who Jesus is. Matthew 28. If you're involved in in any kind of campus ministry, you have memorized this verse. Sometimes you start, though, in verse 19. The key is verse 18. Jesus came to them. This is after his death and resurrection. And he says to them, all what? Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and t- commanding them to obey everything uh, I've commanded them. You, you two do. I should just read it. Anyway, <laughs> and surely I'm with you all it's to the very end of the age. What, what's the key to that? What is the link why you would do that? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Now this is huge <laughs> for you, and you're thinking, I'm not exactly sure how that lands. I'm glad Jesus has all authority, but how does that work? For me, well that's the imp- the, probably the most important thing is for you to acknowledge that Jesus Christ has all of this authority. We do not understand authority unless you are in the military. If you are in the military, you get it. You, you, we just don't in our culture. We don't have this kind of authority. The, the original word is exousia, and you can see some of the definitions there. It's basically a, com- a chain of command that the person underneath must obey. It, the best, you know, we, we don't have good examples here. We don't, we don't have a benevolent dictator in history, right? There isn't any like, oh, that's a nice Hitler or something. It doesn't, we don't have that. But Jesus would be, well, I'm not going to go there. But he would be a benevolent, loving, caring king of all kings. And what he say goes, okay? But we, it's hard for us because all we can think of is whenever people get to that level of authority and power, Absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And so it always seems to lead people down bad paths. That's not true with Jesus. He is king of kings. Now, you might be asking, do the the powers of darkness, does the devil and his cohorts, do they know that Jesus has that level of authority? And you might think, no way. They're at war with him. How would they know that? The answer is, no, actually, they do. One of my favorite passages on this is Matthew chapter 8. And it's this little obscure couple verses there. And it just says, uh, when Jesus arrives on the other side of the region of uh, Gardneris, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way, okay? Then they say this. They look at Jesus and say this. What do you want with us, Son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Are you kidding me? They know their days are numbered. They know who has authority, but they're still doing all the damage they can on the way out. That's reality. Even the spiritual forces of evil understand completely the authority Jesus has. That is huge. Number two. This is where it's all going to kind of link together. You are in Christ if you are a Christ follower. Romans chapter 6. Talked about a couple weeks ago. Tim mentioned uh, that I was uh, gonna be coming back to this. I think we did as well last week that Romans 6, we talked about a couple weeks back. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So in other words, how do we have victory? How do we have obedience in our lives over sin? By no means, and here it is, we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? I didn't die Well, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. What's it saying here? It's saying in a very real way, when you become a follower of Jesus, when you bend your knee to him and say, Jesus, be my Savior, he's not only going to forgive your sin in the future and he will. Like definitely Christianity is about an afterlife. It's about heaven. Certainly. But there's something that happens right now. And in a real way, you're united to Jesus, married to him if you want to think of it that way, and you have all the benefits of this marriage. And one of the things is you died to sin. You're in Christ. Therefore, You have been brought and bought and to Jesus, and you belong to him. 1 Corinthians 6 says it this way. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, I know this isn't... Pleasant imagery, the Apostle Paul is using unpleasant imagery here, but he's using the imagery of slavery and how you'd buy a slave, you'd own someone. Now, there's a lot of metaphors, there's a lot of ways this breaks down, okay? But you have been bought by Christ, by his sacrifice on the cross. You have been purchased. So you're in him, you're bought by him, and this is where it starts to... To link with how we overcome sin then. You have authority because of those two things. Not on your own. You don't. Not on your own. You have authority over sin because you are in and are owned by Jesus. That's it. You have to apply the gospel to overcoming sin or else it's just going to be who's got the best self-effort. That's not gospel living. Gospel living is, is I, have been, I am in you and I'm bought by you. Therefore, as a result of that, I'm different now. Sin no longer has authority over me. And I can now walk in a different way. We'll talk about that in just a second. Jesus gives this authority. He, you can see this. This whole authority that's given to Jesus is actually given to other people. In Matthew 10, he gives it to his disciples. So that they can drive out evil spirits when he sends them out. But he gives them that level of authority. And we go further down in Romans chapter 6. And this is exactly what's been given to you. In the same way, count yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I know what you're saying. You're sitting here. You're going, it doesn't feel that way. I know. I'll get back there in just a minute. I'm fully aware of what you're thinking. I can see you thinking it. I'm not Jesus, but I know you're thinking that. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. Those four verses are the best verses in the Bible on how to overcome sin. All right? Memorize. Count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does that look like? Uh, this stuff, this stuff looks really, really enticing, but it's not reality if I'm that 45-year-old man, if I just follow the train of thought going out, I have the affair. It feels great. And for a moment, I feel alive again until my wife and children find out. And then, and trust me, trust me, I have been, on the, I, I, I've been sitting in my office with many men who have confessed to me this very thing. And when they they first confess it, I know this is the beginning of at least a two to three year train wreck. But somehow it just seems like a good idea at the time. Here's the deal Last uh, Thursday, no, week and a half ago, I find out a good friend of mine who's a pastor has been having an affair for three years. Here's the deal he is that 45 year old guy. Here's another deal. He sat in his office with multiple people who he's watched have a train wreck. And guess what? He did it. Why? Seemed like a good idea at the time. It just does. Your best thinking is terrible. My favorite Alcoholics Anonymous line is when they look at the guy who's thinking about, I'm good now, I can do this on my own, I don't need help. They look at him and say, Your best thinking got you here. Hope! Your best thinking gets you there. That's why we need gospel friends around us. That's why we can never just take one little step into this thinking, you know, it's just one little step, woo! Over that mountain. Count yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let it rain. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its evil desires. What does that look like? <laughs> let me say it. Let me say it again. Don't let it reign. <laughs> That's what you have to do. If you didn't say, oh, you know, I'm, just, I'm just not gonna, it's not, a, it's not a big deal. I'm just not gonna let it reign. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Do not offer, the, offer your, the parts of your body to sin, but rather, offer yourselves to God. You have to move from something, and you've got to move to something. And offer the parts of your bodies to him. Actually do action in the opposite direction, because I'm not under law. Sin's no longer my master. I am under grace. So I told you I'd come back to that concept. Let me quote from the great theologian uh, Robert Zimmerman, also known as Bob Dylan, right? you got to have to serve somebody, right? Oh, it may be the devil, or it may be the love, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Hope West, too. Uh, Bob Dylan, live, 1964. 64 was a good year, just saying. Anyway, uh, now let me, let me give you an analogy here. This is one of my favorite analogies in thinking through this issue. And this is what life is like. Uh, Robert, or excuse me, um, Martin Lloyd Jones, who was a a pastor at Westminster Chapel in London for 30 years, he liked to tell this analogy, and I'm I'm totally taking his analogy. He says, If you go to the countryside of Europe, or, or of England, he says, I don't know what it is, but whenever. People find two or three stones. They got to build a a wall. Just you got to start building a wall. And it's not very. It's it's like this uh, wall right here. It's just a short little wall. It's boundary markers or who knows what. But they just have to build it. And so they built these little these little walls. They're all over England. You can find these these little walls. And he says it's kind of like this. Let's just say that this particular uh, uh, wall. It's barely a wall, but it's it's a wall. Is a boundary marker separating two properties. And these two properties are owned by two different people. And the two different people in his analogy is, on one side you have the kingdom of God, and the other side you have the kingdom of Satan. Okay, so you have the devil in his territory, and then on the other side you have God in his territory. Okay? Now, every one of us, because of Adam and Eve, and because of our own sinfulness, start over here. Okay? We start there. We're in the kingdom of the world. You're not naturally a Christian. I know you might think so because you grew up eating lutefisk and lefsa in the church basement, but that doesn't make you a Christian from, you're not there until you come to a personal point where you bend your knee to Jesus yourself. And let's just say, uh, and I know that's not, not necessarily ever in this room, some of you are here in the room and you're just kicking around Christianity. We were all there at one point. If that's you this morning, I want to welcome you here. That's a fine, great thing. But our hope and aim is that you would choose Jesus. And you would say, Jesus Christ, you are who you say you are. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord and my guide for living. And you transfer from the one side to the other side. You transfer from an old master to a new master, Right? Now, one of the most difficult things for every person I have been around, and in my own experience too, is if that is who I am, if that is who I am, why do I struggle so much? And here's what you do. I know you do it because I did it. You think, okay, if, I, if I'm under new ownership and I belong to Jesus, then if I'm struggling with these sins, then I must not really be under new ownership. I must, I must be a fraud. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones likes to use, uh, the analogy. He says this, the reality is you have shifted over from one side to the other side. The other reality is the wall is only this high. And when your old master yells, you can hear. You can hear that old master's voice all the time even though you do not belong to him anymore but you hear him all the time he's talking he's a talker and he talks all the time and it's coming at you 24 7 gk chesterton uh it was also a brit this is kind of british day isn't it um he, he was at a gathering with a bunch of pastors and he was trying to explain this concept to them about how oh, sin does not have authority over you even though it's very strong. It is very strong. Listen to what Chesterton says in, in one of my favorite G.K. Chesterton uh, quotes. He said, if a rhinoceros were to enter this restaurant now, there is no denying he would have great power here, right? But I would be... <laughs> Only the way Chesterton can do it, but I would be the first to rise and assure him that he had no authority whatever. Rhinoceroses do not belong in restaurants. <laughs> That's the difference: power versus authority. Would it be strong? Yes. Does it belong here? No. Rhino, go home. And here's the tension. Here's the tension. Sin is stronger than you and has power, but not, it doesn't have authority in your life. This results in constant warfare. If you're that person that I was describing before and you're thinking, I'm a follower of Jesus now. Before I really didn't even struggle with sin. Now I, well, of course I just gave into it, but now I really struggle with this. Welcome to the normal Christian life. That's it. I, 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 I've talked about this before. If you're wrestling with trying to change your life and trying to let Jesus reign in more of it, you need to become experts of Romans 6, 7, and 8, right? We talk about this. I, I've been using Romans 6 for a lot of things here. Uh, 8 as well. There, there's some linking between the two. But in the middle of it is chapter 7. I love chapter 7 because the Apostle Paul, who apart from Jesus is my hero, says this. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature or my flesh part of me. For I I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do should do be do. There's a lot of do's here. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do, who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man am I who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I find in myself in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in my flesh, in my sinful nature, I also have this wrestling with I'm a slave to the lost sin. That's the normal Christian life. A few years back in 2008, uh, that's six years ago for you. those of you who are freshmen, The the... We did a series based on, on this book right here, Overcoming Sin and Temptation. Uh, it's written by a Puritan, John Owen. I, I just want to read a couple, couple quotes from, from him in this. It's, this book is absolutely life-changing. It's also the most difficult book I've ever just tried to read. I'm not sure it's in English. It's so difficult. <laughs> but it, it, It's really worth it. It's not a very long book, but it's out of this book, Overcoming Sin and Temptation. And it's an updated version, this particular, this particular book. John Owen says it this way: Do you mortify, that means to kill. Do you kill sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it'll be killing you. And then he gives this analogy um, where he says, We have a body of death, Romans 7:24, from whence we are not delivered. So in other words we still have this it's right there with us except but by or only at the death of our bodies then we'll be freed from it but until then there is no redemption plan for our flesh there's still a it's still our enemy now it being our duty to kill to mortify to be killing of sin we must be at work and he uses an analogy here in one sense it's a great analogy he that is appointed to kill an enemy if he leave or cease striking before the other ceases living, does but half his work. Again, this is why it's difficult. He's saying this. If you're hired as an assassin to find someone in the world and kill them, if you just go out there and find them and then come back to your employer and say, hey, I found them. Oh, did you kill them? No, no, I just found them. No, 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 no. no. You have to go and find them and kill them. Now, I know that's, the, but in the analogy here, That's what he's saying here. You've got to go after sin, and you've got to kill it. And you know what it's going to do the next day? It's going to rise up from the dead, and you kill it again. And you know what it's going to do the next day? Rise up from the dead, and you kill it again. And then four hours later, it's going to rise up, and you start playing, you know, whack-a-mole with sin. And you do. You totally do. And over time, God... God granting, it'll become less moles coming up, but I can't promise that. Kurt Lungren says it this way. He he wrote um, a book on based on the um, um race, uh, uh, He wrote a book based on John Owen's book, and he says it this way. He says, but if you don't find yourself dodging the rhino's horn day and night in a struggle against sin, it may be that you've made peace with the rhino. You are willingly, happily, under its power and rule. See, he's following that illustration of G.K. Chesterton there, right? If you don't feel the whack-a-mole, it's maybe because you're just like, eh, there's a lot of moles there. Okay. Look at what he says. I appeal to you for the sake of your soul. Run to Christ. Only he can slay the rhino in your heart. I need people in my life. I need people in my life to not help me do that. I need people in my life asking me, do you feel the rhino? Do you feel him prodding you? I need people who are saying, What are you you doing? Are you in the fight? Are you whacking a mole? Have you made peace with the rhino? Don't make peace with the freaking rhino. Kill the rhino. Doesn't belong here. No authority. Lots of power, but no authority. I need people to yell that at me. So I yelled that at you. You're welcome. (laughs) I need that. Because you know what I get? Tired of the rhino. And I want to make a pet out of the rhino. Tired of fighting at times. If you're there, that now leads you to the last, the second part and the last point. Obedience is possible. You have victory over sin in your life. You have authority over it because you're in Christ and you've been bought by him. The question now remains, will you and I be obedient to Jesus? We see this from Romans 6.14, right? Sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but you're under grace. It's not your master. It doesn't own you. It's got a loud voice. Let me close by reading you a page out of a book that has really radically challenged me and it's a book by a guy by the name of jerry bridges uh he wrote a book called the pursuit of holiness i just want to read you the preface page nine okay that's it just page nine on the preface i just want to read you that one page as he talks about this he says it this way a farmer plows his field sows the seed and fertilizes and cultivates all the while Knowing that in the final analysis, he is utterly dependent on forces outside of himself. He knows he cannot cause the seed to germinate, nor can he produce the rain and sunshine for growing and harvesting the crop. For a successful harvest, he is dependent on these things from God. Yet the farmer knows that unless he diligently pursues his responsibilities to plow, plant, fertilize, and cultivate, he cannot expect to harvest at the end of the season. In a sense, he is in a partnership with God, and he will reap its benefits only when he has fulfilled his own responsibilities. Farming is a joint venture between God and the farmer. The farmer cannot do what God must do, and God will not do what the farmer should do. We can say just as accurately that the pursuit of holiness is a joint venture between God and the Christian. No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life. But just as surely, no one will attain it without effort on his own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he has given us the responsibility of doing the walking. He does not do that for us. We Christians greatly enjoy talking about the provision of God, how Christ defeated sin on the cross and gave us his Holy Spirit. Uh, to empower us to victory over sin, but we do not as readily talk about our own responsibility to walk in holiness. This is big because it's big. <laughs> Two primary reasons can be given for this. First, we must simply—we we are simply reluctant to face up to our responsibility. We prefer to leave that to God. We pray for victory when we know we should be acting in obedience. Oh, ow. Oh, God, give me victory over this. He says, you already have victory. Pray for obedience. The second is this. We do not understand the proper distinction between God's provision and our own responsibility for holiness. I struggled for a number of years with the question, what am I to do myself and what am I to rely on God to do? Only as I came to see what the Bible teaches on this question then faced up to my own responsibility did I see any progress in the pursuit of holiness. And where Bridges is going to go in his book is where Cor and I have been going in these last two messages. God reveals truth. God, by his Holy Spirit, moves within us. God helps us to move from hating those things we should hate towards loving those things we should love. It still requires effort onto us, that inner work. But then from there, It is about action. It is about stepping out and saying no to this and yes to this. No to the rhino and yes to the platypus or whatever the good animal is. I guess they don't belong in restaurants either. But I go another way. Boy, that analogy didn't work. Uh, Move. Hope community. Let's be people not just of good doctrine. But people with they would recognize because we're people of love in our hands and in our feet. As I promised, let me close with the same verse I opened with. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Let's pray together.